Well, good morning. If you would turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking verses 14 to 21, an apostolic prayer. I chose this text for a couple of reasons. Our first couple of 42 plus years who have loved us so well on this first day, without question, we are missing them. But this text reminds us that any expression of love that we experienced from Brother Al and Miss Kim, and it was a full, is only an expression of the love that God has for Lakeview Baptist Church. And that love will never go away. The Lord of love has not retired. The second reason I've chosen this text is this text teaches us a good deal about how to pray for each other. And as I begin my ministry here, without training wheels, this is my prayer for you as well. So if you would look with me, Ephesians 3 verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is perfect. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. By it, We pray that you would revive our souls, make wise the simple, rejoice our hearts, and enlighten our eyes. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth, the preacher today, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Call to Spiritual Reformation, tells of one of his colleagues at Trinity uh, Divinity School, Perry Downs, and his wife, Sandy, who fostered 20-plus infants in their foster care ministry. They did that through the years. But one day, their agency that they worked with contacted them, and they said, we would like you to take in some twin boys who are 18 months old. You only have to keep them for six weeks. And so Perry and Sandy took in these 18-month-old twin boys. And the first night they put them down to sleep. And they noticed that 30 minutes in that the boys had not made a sound. And so Perry went into the room And he saw that the boys were wide awake. But what he saw deeply saddened him. 
They had not made a sound, but their pillowcases were wet with tears. Turns out, these boys had been beaten in several of the foster homes, which they were, when they cried. And so they learned how to cry without making a sound. And this was their ninth foster home. Well, Perry and Sandy kept these boys not six weeks. They kept them for two years. And when they received these boys, these boys were undeveloped. They were undeveloped emotionally and intellectually. It had been stunted by the lack of love they had received. But by the time a couple adopted these boys, their intellectual and emotional maturity and their development was on par with other kids their age. What had happened? The boys had experienced sacrificial love from these foster parents. And it had literally matured them. That's what it had done. The same is true for us spiritually. Just as we cannot enjoy healthy maturation intellectually and, and emotionally without solid, sacrificial, disciplined parental love, in the same way a Christian, if he is to grow, if she is to grow uh, spiritually, must also grow in our understanding of God's love for us in his son Jesus Christ. And given the exalted role that God has given the church, and the first three chapters in Ephesians are about that exalted role, God's purpose is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. What that means essentially is he's making all things new in the Son. The church has a role in that. Christ is filling the church as he fills all things. In other words, it is through the church, the covenantal presence of Christ, the lordship of Christ will extend to the ends of the earth. That is an important role for the church. But in order for the church to function the way God has intended it to function, it must be mature. It must understand the love of God. And hence, this prayer. That brings us to the first part of this passage, the addressee, who Paul is addressing. Notice with me in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, I want you to notice, for this reason. What does he mean by that? Well, if you'll notice in verse 1 of the chapter, for this reason. He's about to pray in verse 1. But then he begins to reflect on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and he breaks off into an inspired tangent that has benefited the church for 2,000 years. So here he's getting back to praying, and he says... For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family and on earth derives or or on earth is named. Now, this is important when you see that he's approaching the Father. A lot of times I'm asked, can you pray to the to the Son of God. Yes, you can. He is equal in essence and power and glory to the Father. Can you pray to the Holy Spirit? I believe you can pray to the Holy Spirit. He is equal in essence to the Father and the Son. But when you study Paul's prayers, Paul always approaches the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. That's, there's an order in the Godhead, in other words. And, and so this 
is no less, though, a Trinitarian prayer. Because if you'll notice here, he prays to the Father, but he prays later in the verse, verse 16, that they would be strengthened by the Spirit. And then in verse 17, that Christ would dwell in their hearts. So the Apostle Paul is, is musing on the triunity of God. And when you muse upon God in this way, it prompts you to pray. It really does. Um, and conversely, prayerlessness is a reflection that we don't know God as we should. So Paul is teaching us here about the Trinitarian nature of God even as he prays. But notice what he says. This Father that he is approaching, he has named everything in heaven and on earth. What does he mean by that? Well, in biblical times, the one who had naming rights had all authority. And so he's reminding us here as we approach the Father that he has all authority. Now think about this. If you have a need and, and you recognize someone has the authority to meet that need, what are you going to do? You're going to flee to that person. You'll do what it takes to go to that person because you know that person has the authority to meet that need. And Paul is saying here, the Father has all authority to meet our needs. When we understand that, it's going to affect the fervency of our prayer lives. So notice, as he approaches the Father, he has certain prayer requests. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, the appeal. We see that in verses 16 to 19. And the first appeal is that God's people would be strengthened by God's power. Notice with me in verse 16. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 14, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And so here Paul appeals to the riches of the Father's glory. Now, what is he referring to here? The riches of the Father's glory. It refers to what God the Father has secured for every believer through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's what he has in mind in Philippians 4.19, which he wrote at the same time as he wrote Ephesians, essentially the same time. He says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so that's what he's referring to here. Jesus has won our pardon. He has reconciled us to the Father. He has canceled our sin. He has granted us the gift of the Holy Spirit by making us fit for the Spirit to dwell. He knows, Paul knows, that God's supply is as extensive as the benefits secured by Jesus. Now that's an important point. God's supply for believers is as extensive as the benefits secured for us by Jesus through his life and his cross and his resurrection from the grave. But our natural self-centeredness, our natural self-absorption is so deeply woven in the fabric of our being, it takes nothing less than the power of God to make us fit 
for his supply. That's what he's praying. That's why he's praying. But by nature, we are so sufficient in and of ourselves that um, we, we just don't have the capacity to come to him uh, with our dependency. And so he is praying for this power. And, and we see that this power is actually the Christian life. For instance, in, in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. It is God in Christ who gives us the strength to live the Christian life. 2 Timothy 2, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The, the Christian life is Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. By the strength that God supplies, 1 Peter 4, with all the energy that powerfully works within us, Colossians 1, 29. And, and to be strengthened here, Paul is praying for that here, it is, is passive, which tells us it's not something we do. It's something that God in his son Jesus and by his spirit does in us. And that's driven home by these three important phrases. Notice with power strengthened with power now what is that power now as hard as it is to believe this it's resurrection power now why would I say that in Ephesians chapter 1 Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order to know the hope to which God has called us the riches of his glorious uh, his, his glorious riches in Christ Jesus and he says, and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is resurrection power. The power to be holy. To power to love the loveless. To power to think, to be motivated in ways that please God. Power to live a contented life. Power to be grateful. Paul is praying for that. Keep in mind, Ephesians 4 to 6 is loaded with commands. In Ephesians 4 to 6, there will be 39 commands Paul gives the church. In order for us to be prepared for those commands, we have to have this power. Notice, not only it's with power, it's through his spirit. The spirit is the agent, the third person of the Trinity, who carries this out. Now, Paul would say it's foolish as many teach today, to look within yourself for your own strength. Find the, the giant within. You'll hear teachers even on TV today. Find that, that giant within uh, in every person and, and look within for your strength. And, and Paul would say, have you ever noticed what God does to giants in the Bible? Uh, we, we are not giants. We, we are helpless and desperate. And yet the Lord through his spirit has, has given us grace to have res resurrection power. This is well. He says it's through your inner being. This is the location. Uh, so God the Spirit does this in us. Now to get a, a clearer picture of, of what Paul is saying here, he uses the same terminology in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16. And we'll see this on the screen. He says there, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, it's the same phrase, is being renewed day by day. The inner self here is exactly the same expression. For the Apostle Paul, there are 
two aspects to our humanity, our humanity. Uh, the inner self and the outer self. Both are important. We're not Gnostics. In fact, the outer self, which is our physical bodies, will one day be raised. But here's the problem. Today, we seem to be far more interested in the outer self than the inner self. Uh, just consider the biblical illiteracy in the Western church today, though most people have numerous Bibles on their shelves. And, and think about the, the fitness industry. You know, it's interesting, I read this, that exercise and fitness did not figure prominently in our culture until the turn of the 20th century. Essentially, those who exercised and, and sought to be fit were either in the military or they, they played athletics. But it changed at the turn of the 20th century. Why? Because of the mass production of the camera. People began to see pictures of themselves, and they saw themselves as other people saw them. And so you see the rise of the fitness industry. Well, there's nothing wrong with exercising, for sure. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, that it profits a little. But our outer man is aging. It is aging, and there is no treatment for mortality. David Corbett just had his knee replacements. He had both knees replaced at the same time. And then he had the gall to send me the pictures. <laughs> and uh, he, he texted me and he said, I've noticed that your knees don't seem that healthy either. <laughs> Essentially, he was saying, this is your future. <laughs> what the most encouraging text. And Paul is saying... I want your inner man so formed by the Holy Spirit that when all our bodily strength is gone, there is a soul that is fully conformed to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, that's one of the glories of Lakeview. Um, there are many here today, uh, gray hairs, that your bodies are, are fading. And yet, your inner self is as strong as it's ever been. And that's why I would submit to young people, you need to be in a church where there is gray hair. Because it's the gray hair who've walked with God and, and in whom the Spirit has formed Christ that is one of the great blessings of the church. And that's what Paul is praying for here. It, it, it's, he's praying that the inner man, the inner self, be so conformed to Christ and he says it's prerequisite for something very vital. That brings us to verse 17. Notice, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, that's just interesting. Notice, it's like a, a, a staircase. He says, out of the riches of his glory, he grants, he prays that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, one is the prerequisite to the other. We have to be strengthened with resurrection power in our inner being, which overcomes our selfishness and our self-sufficiency. And then, with that, Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, it may seem a bit odd that he's praying that Jesus would dwell in believers. 
I mean, doesn't he promise to dwell in us in John chapter 14? Well, I think the key to understanding this is found in this verb, to dwell. It means to take up full residence. I mean, think of this analogy. A young couple buys a a fixer-upper. It's a home um, that just needs fixing up. Everything about it needs touching up. Things are broken. It's not much to look at. It's essentially uncomfortable for the couple to even live there. But after 25 years, the husband looks at the wife and says, You know, we've worked on this house. We have shown tender loving care to this house. And after 25 years, this is our home. We are comfortable here. And I think this is a good illustration because when Jesus, by the Spirit, takes up residence in our inner selves, it's a fixer-upper. It's broken. It is sin-stained. It is selfish. But then he begins the work of transforming that fixer-upper to the point that he is comfortable dwelling there. So Jesus' presence uh, will increasingly take over our attitudes. It will increasingly take over our motives and our thoughts and our words and our actions and tongue. As Luther said, the love of God does not find that which is pleasing to God. It creates that which is pleasing to God. I think that's what Paul has in view here. But again, when, when Jesus comes into our hearts, uh, he finds it in bad condition. And that's why Paul prays for this resurrection power to change our hearts and to work faith in us. And again, faith here is the means by which this indwelling is attained. It, it's the active faith of the believer as he puts his faith, his trust, his hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Of course, our faith is like a muscle. Uh, It it can be strengthened. It can be weakened, okay? And that's why I believe Charles Hodge was right when he says, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. So, So Jesus indwelling us by the Spirit isn't like turning a light switch at home It's either off or on. No, Christ is in us. If you're a believer, having marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, Christ is in you if you are a believer. So it's not like a light switch, either off or on. It's more like a dimmer switch, okay? So when a dimmer switch is turned up, the light is bright. And when the dimmer switch is turned down, the light is less bright, And Paul is making a connection between Christ dwelling in us and the condition and the strength of our faith. But in addition to praying for this kind of faith, in addition to praying for this strengthening, Paul's second request, and founding in the second part of verse 17, is an appeal to understand God's love in Jesus Christ. Notice in the second part of verse 17, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Now that's, that's just loaded language. Rooted and grounded in love. 
the love of Christ magnetizes our heart to his priorities. That's important to understand when it comes to sanctification. It magnetizes our hearts to Christ's priorities. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Now, God's love does not remove all the allure of sin. All right? That's important to understand. But our love for sin, which gives sin its power, all right, it is increasingly broken by this greater love that God's love produces. Let me give you a universal principle for every individual who's ever walked. Whatever we love most controls us. Whatever we love most controls us. And so the alcoholic may hate the consequences of his sin. He may hate the consequences of his, his drunkenness. And, and, and he may really love his family. But at the time of that intoxication, the substance means more. The adulterer, he may really love his wife. He may sincerely tell his wife, I love you. But at the time of his unfaithful encounter, his encounter with his mistress is loved more by him than his love for his spouse. And yet you could say that is true of uh, people that watch pornography. It's true of every culpable sin that we commit. In other words, ultimate love ultimately controls. Ultimate love ultimately controls. And so real change, real power comes when Jesus becomes more preeminent to us. When his love becomes our preeminent love and his love becomes our preeminent love as we grow in our understanding of his love for us. Love begets love. And by the expulsive power of this love, the chains of addiction are broken. Patterns of sin are broken. Habits of slothfulness are broken. These habits that have been created and forged by more sinister loves, by lesser loves, but they are replaced by the surpassing love of a Savior who came to redeem us not only from the penalty of those sins, but from sin's power. Now, this language of uh, being rooted and grounded, um, Jonathan Edwards taught us that everything in the created order preaches the glory of God. That's Psalm 19, which means everything we see in creation is a sign glory, pointing beyond itself to a greater glory. That's why creation is so beautiful and glorious. It preaches God's glory. And so when he uses this language of being rooted, he, he, he assumes cultural competency. That's agricultural language. They would have known that. And when he uses this language of being grounded, that's architectural, architectural language. He would have assumed they would have known that. So think about this. The tree with the deepest roots in all the world is called the shepherd's tree. It's found in the Kalahari Desert. 
Now, Kalahari means waterless. And so you have this tree known as the shepherd's tree that thrives in a waterless place. How does it thrive in a waterless place? It has roots 230 feet deep. That's 23 stories. And so this tree thrives even in the most hard conditions because it's rooted deeply. Paul says that's the love of God for us. And then we're not only rooted in this love, we are grounded by this love. That's architectural language. So let's talk about the, the uh, tallest skyscraper, the Burj Khalifa. Uh, maybe some of you have been to the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. That building is over a half a mile high. Now that's incredible. Over a half a mile high, which requires a deep foundation. It is grounded 160 feet deep. And Paul says that doesn't compare to the love of God in Jesus Christ for every believer. Notice in verse 18. He says, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, Paul makes here a critical couple of points here. To and the first being that we would comprehend how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. But notice, he uses the language of all, with all the saints. What does that mean? It reminds us that this is a corporate endeavor. In order to fully grow in our understanding of the love of God, it requires body life. Now, I recognize there are people that are legitimate shut-ins. And, and we pray for the shut-ins, and we care for the shut-ins. Uh, they are there not by their own um, desires. It's a necessary reality for shut-ins. But the normal believer, the one who is not confined by difficult providences, should be immersed in body life. Because he says, in order to comprehend this, it requires body life. He says it's with all the saints. What do we mean by that? So, for instance... Uh, we have been loved so deeply by you in this transition. It was a tough transition. We have uh, two of our uh, family members from, from Fisherville visiting with us this morning, Jose and Vinny. Uh, they made the eight-hour trip. We loved them deeply, and we were loved deeply there, but we've experienced that love here. And, and I could say, well, Lakeview sure loves me, but actually it's the love of God being expressed through Lakeview. In order, Paul is saying in order to understand this love requires that you be immersed with all the saints. But notice as well, he says it's a love that surpasses knowledge. Now that seems ironic. Love that surpasses knowledge. How can we comprehend a love that surpasses knowledge? I think essentially what Paul is saying here is that it would take eternity to plumb even the surface of this love. Think about this. The deepest part of the ocean is the Challenger Deep Gorge in the Mariana Trench in the Northwest Pacific. The deepest part of that ocean there is seven miles deep. It's one mile deeper than the height of Mount Everest. 
And yet, we can still enjoy, we can still study and benefit from the ocean, even though there's no way to plumb its depths. There's no instrumentation that can go down that deep in the ocean. And the second part of verse 19 makes clear the more that we learn and grow in this love, the more something critical happens. Notice in the second part of verse 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that's remarkable language if you know your Old Testament. Because God filled the Garden of Eden with his presence. He filled the tabernacle with his presence. He filled the temple, but he didn't fill his people. But he says, as we grow in our understanding of the love of God, something remarkable happens under the new covenant. We are filled. We are filled with the fullness of God. That's remarkable. Now, what does he mean by that? If you look over in chapter 4, verse 13, I think he gives us clarity. There, the apostle Paul is praying that God would give... That, that he says that God has given us teachers and pastors to prepare God's people for works of service. And he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, notice, to become mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's speaking here about spiritual maturity. But Paul knows that we cannot be mature until we know this love. And as I read this prayer, I have to say this week, as I meditated on this prayer, in many ways it seemed foreign to me. Because I feel like I am pre-kindergarten in my understanding of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, how do I know that? I struggle with low-grade anxiety. All right? Sometimes I struggle with jealousy. Sometimes I struggle with discontentment. All of these are symptoms that the love of God in Jesus Christ hasn't fully taken hold in my heart. This seems so foreign to me sometimes. And that's why the last two verses are so critical. How could I ever get to that place where I can comprehend the love of God in Jesus Christ? And that leads Paul to adoration. Notice in verse 20. It may seem foreign to you, this prayer. It may seem so far from your experience. But notice verse 20. Now to him. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now that is so comforting. God's ability to answer this prayer is driven home by this closing doxology. Notice, he's able to do, verse 20. In other words, he's neither inactive nor is he idle. He's at work. He is able to do. Notice as well, he's able to do what we ask. He hears and he responds to our prayers. Not because of the fitness of our hearts, but because of a high priest who has gone before us. Because of a righteousness that has been imputed to us. So that James can say, the prayers of the righteous availeth much. Notice as well, 
he's able to do what we ask or think. In other words, there are some things we think, but we don't pray because we feel it's too audacious to ask. He's able to do what we ask or we think. Notice as well, he's able to do all we ask and think. In other words, he knows all and he performs it. Fifth, he's able to do more than all that we ask and think. In other words, his expectations are higher than ours. He's also able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think. In other words, he does not ration out his grace to believers. He floods us daily with his grace. His all-sufficient manna, his grace. And then finally, he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or we think. He is a God of super abundance. You didn't know there was that much in that verse, did you? As our able God answers this prayer for the church, notice verse 21. As we're growing in our understanding of the love of God, as God is able to affect these things in us, verse 21, to him be glory in the church. For 42 plus years, that has been realized at Lakeview. And it's my prayer that it will continue to be realized over the next generation. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. To him be glory in the church, the body, and in Christ Jesus, the head. Let's remember, the head has not retired. The head is still the head of the church. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Not just the previous generation. Not just the present generation. One day I'll retire and through that generation as well. Forever and ever into eternity. And notice how he ends. Amen. In other words, let it be so. Indeed, let it be so. Perry Downs and his wife Sandy, their love, though imperfect and sometimes volatile and temporal, as it was, had a massive effect on these twin 18-month-old boys. And the love of God changes our lives. And this is my prayer for us. And it's also my prayer for those of you that have never experienced that love through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, John writes in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Some of you are here today, and this love is so foreign to you. I said that it was pre, I, I'm pre-kindergarten uh, when it comes to understanding the love of God, but I've experienced it. I experience it daily. But some of you have never experienced it in that way because you've never repented of your sins. You're holding on to your sins because you believe that's the key to flourishing. That's the key to happiness. That's the key to joy. That's the key to making it in this world. And it's that very key that's separating you from God. But God has made provision through his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, to set you free from that sin. And if you will repent of your sin and trust in him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven and you'll begin to experience the love of God in Jesus Christ 
in a manner that you've never experienced in this world. So as our musicians come forward, uh, I want you to contemplate that. Understand today that there is no sin too great for the love of God. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Now, the love of God is not some kind of greasy kind of love that bad grandparents show their grandchildren when they can't say no to them. Uh, God's love is different. It's a disciplining kind of love. It's a love at a cost. It's, it's God absorbing the debt that we owe to set us free from our sin. And all you have to do is repent of that. And we'd love to talk to you. We're going to have uh, pastors here at the aisle. So won't you stand and sing and won't you come? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.